One thing we're exploring here on the Half Hippie Podcast is the notion of identity, right? If we're a hippie, not a hippie, a half hippie. And one of the identities that a lot of us carry is that of privilege. And I know that word privilege kind of makes some people uncomfortable sometimes, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. So in today's episode, we're going to get a little uncomfortable, we're going to get vulnerable here, and we're going to talk about privilege and anti-racism. And my guest today is so incredible. She is a woman in tech, just like me. In fact, she works at a university, and she does tech stuff there. She is funny and smart and passionate and a bit of a nihilist, so we do have a lot in common, but she has a lot of wisdom on this topic of privilege and anti-racism and how to be an ally and how to be an anti-racist. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I think we're all going to learn a lot, and I invite you to just get curious and explore with us what it means to have privilege how we can use our privilege to help other people and just understand that when people talk about privilege, it's not something that you can give up. It's something that you get to use to help others. Also, check out the Half Hippie podcast Instagram page because all week I'll be sharing resources and ideas for you in the stories. So check that out too. I hope you enjoy today's episode with my friend Larissa Mogano. She inspires me so much, and I hope she does the same for you. You're listening to the Half Hippie Podcast with Tara Milo. I'm a half hippie, half princess, cat mom, city girl, introvert, and entrepreneur. I don't fit into a box, and you don't either, but I'm committed to making the world a better place through my lifestyle and my business. I love talking about sustainability because I know that you can make a positive difference without giving up the things you love. Here on the Half Hippie Podcast, we're talking about sustainability and entrepreneurship. We'll share stories about what makes us all half hippie and what our other half does to make a positive impact in the world. Let's go. Thank you for joining me on the Half Hippie Podcast. I'm excited to talk about this. So... Normally on the podcast, we talk about hippies or I talk about hippies in terms of um, sustainability, but honestly, my first impressions of hippies came from music and protest and anti-war and all of that. So I was wondering, first of all, what do you think a hippie is? So I think I grew up thinking that my parents were hippies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm I'm a child of the 70s and they weren't, you know, super activists or at least not that I'm aware of. But like you, um, probably, you know, from the music that we listened to in the house to the way that we lived, um, my parents left a sort of more populated suburb um, outside of Philadelphia for a much less populated, more rural um lifestyle. I grew up on about two acres and uh, we had lots of animals and always, you know, always all kinds of pets, but some, you know, we had ducks and rabbits and things like that too. So, I mean, I grew up thinking that that's what a hippie was. Um, And of course that informed, um, you know, some of my beliefs growing up, even though maybe it wasn't super guided. Um, 
I think the short answer, though, is that hippies are in some way just conscientious. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think so, too, of the earth and other Mm -hmm. people and all of that. Yeah. Mm. What about today? Like, what's something that you do today that's, like, totally hippie? (laughs) Um, Well, I compost. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's something I picked up from my grandfather. He was a he was a composter. I mean, he had an enormous sense of pride over the fact that he would put out one tiny bag of trash um, every week for the trash. Yeah. And um, especially now that we're home and uh, you know getting lots of deliveries and things like that, I'm I'm you know just as sort of conscientious about that myself now too. So we pay f- my partner and I pay for. Um, a composting bucket and there's a company that comes and picks it up and puts it in their, you know, giant bin somewhere outside of the city. And then twice a year I get a free bag of uh, really nice, healthy composted soil. So that's one thing I do. (laughs) I think that is a a lifelong effort. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's better than me. I don't compost, (laughs) but I'm in an apartment. I don't know. That's my It's hard to do in the city. It really is. (laughs) And and the only way I'm able to do it sort of conveniently and effectively, because I've tried to do it myself without paying for a service and it is really sort of more work than I have the capacity to do. So this is a nice way to do it. I keep a little bin on my counter and then I empty it a few times a week into a bucket. And then Wednesday mornings they come and pick it up and they, they return it to my stoop and the process continues. That's a great business Mm -hmm. idea. I -hmm. like that. I think a lot of people around here would go for that because we feel guilty for not composting. But what's something you do that's not hippie? Um, That's a good question. Lately, I drive more than I would prefer. Oh, yeah. I am an avid public transportation person, but COVID has really thrown that um, by the wayside. You know, part of the reason is because I'm kind of, you know, we're all confined to our homes Mm -hmm. here in the States still, most of us that are still at least abiding by that. And even when I do want to go out for a walk, like with my dog or something like that, I kind of just want a change of scenery. I don't really want to walk around my neighborhood. Yep. All the time. So I will drive her, you know, even if it's just to another part of the city, um, just another neighborhood or to a park or something like that. Yeah. And driving is sort of like my big adventure for the week, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I get out. I, I still go to stores. I still go grocery shopping. I know a lot of people don't. Um, but that yeah. is sort of uh, fun <laughs> for me now. <laughs> Um, but growing up, up where I did, uh, we didn't have public transportation and we really kind of had to drive everywhere. Um, so I feel like I yeah. earned, <laughs> I've earned it as an adult by taking so much public transportation, um, uh, up until now. So I, I'm still conscientious when I do drive, you know, I try to do all of my stops all at once and, you know, carpool if we can, or, uh, you know, make yeah. sure that we're not just uh, abusing it, you know? Right. Yeah. That's a very common answer is driving. I wish there was a better mm-hmm. way. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I actually love driving. That was that's something that mm-hmm. I miss is the freedom to go wherever you want to go, but I don't have a right. car, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I've I've heard that um COVID is going to affect public transportation because a lot of people are driving or they bought a car because they're like, I don't want to go back into public. 
emptiness. Yeah. I mean, when, when I do have to eventually go back to work, I will probably bike. Um, I was already able to do that before. I'm not really an all seasons biker, so I don't know that I would do it like right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm yeah. only about two or three miles from work as it is. So it's not, it's not too difficult for me to do that. Yeah, yeah. that's good. I bought a bike because I didn't want to be on public transportation with a lot, with the pub, you know, like with mm-hmm. a lot of people, but I don't ride it very no. much. I still prefer to walk because there's so many hills uh, yeah. here. That's really my thing. And I'm such a princess. <laughs> like I don't want to be cold. Right. I don't want to be <laughs> dirty. I don't want to yeah. do it. <laughs> but anyway, so let's talk about this other aspect of hippies, the idea of protest and yeah, just kind of fighting back against injustice and, and things like that. That's kind of the topic for today. So when was your first protest? Is that something that you're into and proud of? Like, I'm a proud protester, <laughs> but what, what about you? <laughs> it's funny because my first actual protest, I was in high school. I went to Catholic school for 13 years, kindergarten through 12th grade. Oh, wow. And my first actual protest was a pro-life march. <laughs> <laughs> I think mostly because I wanted to get out of school. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and then I got to DC and I was there with some friends and some of us were kind of like this is weird and uh realized uh, I mean I didn't really know anything about what pro life even yeah. meant, you know, then. I had no business going. I was a very young teenager. I don't even think I was like sexually active. Um <laughs> and I went and then I realized that I was with a lot of guys. There were a lot of guys there for some reason. Uh, uh-huh. And a couple of my friends started talking and some of them were more mature than I was even. And they were like, you know what this is, right? And I was like, I'm kind of getting it. <laughs> I mean, I was very young. I think I was like maybe 14 or 15 yeah. or something. And um, I mean, it didn't take me very long after that to realize like, oh no, this is not where I fall in this, <laughs> in this position. <laughs> Um, so now I am, you know, pretty adamantly, um, pro-choice. Right. So that was my first protest. My first, I, I guess, sort of involvement in activism though, um, cause I really don't, I really think of it sort of outside of protests. Um, yeah. yeah. especially now because of COVID, uh, I've always been a little weary of like, um, group think and big crowds. Mm. Um, so protests are sometimes a little challenging anyway, but um, when I was around the same age, probably 14, younger than the, than the pro-life March, um, I was in a, an Earth Day March, an Earth Day rally. Yeah. Um, I've always been really into environmentalism, um, you know, even as a kid. I, I think especially when you grow up with a grandfather that composts, you know, and puts <laughs> yeah. out one bag of trash and, um, you know, my depression era grandparents sort of raised me for the most part. I, I spent most of my after school days at their house and stuff like that. Um, so I was always very, very aware of, um, environmental impacts. Uh, even if I wasn't like scientifically aware, you know, I just kind of knew like trash is bad and it goes in the ocean, you know, and yeah, like yeah. a kid, like I like turtles and I don't want them to get hurt, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, that stuff really stays with you, you know? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So my first rally was an Earth Day rally with a, a friend of mine. And I think it was like, a you know, one of those like fun walks or something like that. And then we like oh, picked yeah. up trash at a high school or some park or something. Right. And I mean, I'm, that was uh, 30 years ago. And I, you know, just a couple of weeks ago was planting some trees for a local organization. <laughs> um, so again, that's really stayed with me too. 
the rest of my activism has sort of obviously, uh, you know, as you know, personally has expanded quite a bit since then, though, outside of environmentalism. Right, right. That's really sweet, though. I Now that I think about it, my probably first protest was something like that related to Earth Day mm-hmm. or a march or the fun run mm-hmm. or, yeah, those kind of things. That was cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one I remember was about the Iraq War, and I remember it was immediately after... 9-11 and we just kind of knew that the Bush administration was going to take advantage of that moment yeah. and invade Iraq and and hmm. I even went to protest after it started and my boss was like why are people still protesting the invasion <laughs> began it's over why are you and it's like I had to think about it for a minute because I was there I was marching with people then mm-hmm. too and I think we were just in solidarity so yeah. I get what you're saying about groupthink, mm-hmm. but for me, it felt good to be with other people mm-hmm. who agreed. Like, it, it just was nice to know that I wasn't alone in that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's certainly part of it. You know, and I've, I've obviously attended my fair share of rallies and, yeah. or, you know, helped organize or just shown up. But I think, um, you know, in the last couple of years, um, just being so involved, I've kind of realized that burnout is a real thing. Um, and yeah. you can't go to all the things. And not only that, there are just so many other ways to be an activist. And I think we just focus on those big events because turnout, you know, is sort of indicative of how important an issue is. But, you know, writing op-eds and uh, forming, you know, some some coalitions and some networks, uh, calling your state representatives and elected officials and things like that. Um, those have become, you know, equally, if not even more important to me, um, especially because mm-hmm. you can, you know, do them from home and you can just, it's on your to-do list with brushing your teeth and paying your bills and, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah. if you have a network of people that you can share those things with, and it's sort of like being together, you know, like I have a couple yeah. of, um, sort of activist groups that I'm in where the, there's not just one issue that we rally around. It's just sort of like, Hey, here's a bunch of stuff we can call our elected officials about today, you know, Mark done when you're done. And you can see that like 300 other people did it. And, um, I think that's that's really helped um, me feel still engaged when I feel like I can't necessarily make it out, you know. Yep. That's a great point because sometimes when I would go to protests or when, you know, you see them all the time and it's like, man, we've been marching about this and nothing changes. Nobody cares. Like what we need to do something other than walking in the street. Yeah. Um, and I don't mm-hmm. want to disparage my fellow activists that show up for all the things, but to me, yep. um, marching almost feels like passive, you mm-hmm. know, instead of active. And I really, uh, I really, um, have enjoyed learning more, like learning more enough about topics to where I feel like I could actually speak on it. You know, where mm-hmm. if I go to a rally, if somebody stuck a microphone in my mouth, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I would, <laughs> um, or stuck a microphone in my face. I don't know that I would know what to say off the cuff, you know, if it were just an yeah. that I'm like, I'm full of rage and I want to, you know, I want to be involved. Um, yeah. and that's been really important for me because it is sometimes hard to articulate just what it is that you're like fighting for or against or whatever. So, um, I, I think 
ultimately it's important to recognize that like everybody has a role and there's not just one thing to do. And some people do a little bit of all of those things. Some people do a lot of one thing. Um, I try to, I try to do, I try to be like sort of that generalist, you know, like I'll go to a couple rallies, I'll write a couple of letters, I'll, you know, um, get a couple more people interested, et cetera. Yeah. That's great. That's a good point because it does get exhausting Mm -hmm. to go and feel like nothing's happening. But if you can take action in another way, that's nice. Yeah. I like, I kind of like to go because I'm such an introvert that I don't have to speak. Mm -hmm. I can just be there physically and be counted. Mm -hmm. And that feels important enough, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can appreciate that. I mean, the other thing is, um, you know, sometimes there are causes where a lot of people show up um, and, you know, and some of this is in like the messaging and stuff like that. There are causes where a lot of people show up, but maybe the issue itself already gets a lot of attention. You know, it's sort of mm-hmm. like if you donate to certain causes, you know, you can donate to the Red Cross or Greenpeace or something like that, which is good. I mean, it's always good to put, you know, your money where your mouth is to some extent. Yeah. But like, I know I get a lot of junk mail from Greenpeace and that's intuitive <laughs> to their mission. Um, whereas if I put that money directly into like a local organization that's very small and gets no amplification and has no marketing budget, you know, they, they rely exclusively on the people that support them to kind of get the word out. I feel like that money is more impactful and I feel similarly to, to marches, you know, and events and things like that. Um, like I know you and I had kind of talked about like the women's march at one point. And I went to one of them. I went, I went to the, one of the first ones and then I actually went, wound up going to the black women's March in DC and Mm. um, it had a pretty big turnout. So I was glad to see that, but I felt like my presence there was more important, (laughs) you know? um, Yeah. uh, Same goes for, there was a a local college student here in Philly that, that hosted one too. And, you know, it's a very small turnout um, where the issue is almost greater, (laughs) you know, and I, I just felt, um, were justified in, in being at that and supporting them and amplifying their message and, you know, um, just kind of being there to like back them up. Right. You know, it's interesting. I was just reflecting back on some of the conversations I've seen and sometimes people are like, well, did you go to any Black Lives Matter marches? And it's like, you know, maybe there wasn't one where I lived or maybe, maybe I didn't go, but I did something else. You know, like we kind of put that on a pedestal sometimes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, let's talk about privilege and anti-racism because you and I are privileged women and we, I don't know, when we show up somewhere, we look safe and non-threatening. Mm-hmm. So I think we maybe we have more of a responsibility or, I don't know, to do something. Yeah, I mean... I, I would certainly agree with that um, to some extent. You know, I feel like I feel like part of my being involved in whatever anti-racist work I can be involved in is, uh, you know, there's a, there's an expression that I share a lot, and I think I forget I think it was Muhammad Ali that said it. Something about service to others is the rent you pay for your you know life on earth, um, mm-hmm. and I think about the. Uh, people and organizations, uh, like I said before, who don't get that amplification as much, you know, because 
Um, it's a cause that people are maybe scared to get involved in because they don't know enough or they don't want to mess up or, um, yeah. you know, they, they want to do it right. Or, I mean, honestly, people get involved in stuff that affects them personally. And I think, you know, using your privilege um, positively is getting involved in something that doesn't affect you personally. Yeah. And quite frankly, I think that's an over, oversimplification because it does affect me personally that black people aren't treated <laughs> equitably, you know, or fairly right. or justly in this country. That that really affects me. I mean, I have friends and family and neighbors and, um, you know, community members and, you know, everything under the sun um, that mean a lot to me. And when they hurt, I hurt, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they feel like they aren't being served by uh, you know, just their general like constituency or their neighbors or whatever. I, I take that personally. I feel like I need to rectify that. Um, some of it is atoning for other people's mistakes. And I know that there's a lot of people that, uh, and not even mistakes, some of it's ignorance, some of it's intentional. I mean, some is they will tell, sure. tell and they'll do it again, you know. Um, yeah. So some of that is our responsibility as privileged people to kind of overcompensate for the ones that aren't, you know, that, that don't learn or that have bad intentions or learned wrong. And who knows if we can really correct their behavior, but we can at least make sure that the people that it's impacted know that other people are in their corner, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. So let's talk about that word privilege because some people feel really threatened by that word. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like and you and I both know this, like when we talk about privilege and the fact that we have privilege, we're not asking anyone to give up. You can't give up your privilege. You have it. Like it's just something you have, Mm -hmm. but it's something you can use positively, which it sounds like is what you're doing. Do you ever feel like you're sacrificing something by doing the work and being an anti-racist? Do you feel like you're missing out on something in life? I don't think by doing the work I'm missing out. I think by living in a country that has put us in this position, we're all missing out. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm born where I was born and and this is sort of like, you know, everybody's crossed a bear at this point, but I mean, on the one hand, yes, I'm I'm def- I'm sacrificing all kinds of things. You know, I'd love to just go through life um uh, doing what I want and, you know, go shopping and buy stuff that produces lots of trash, you know, and um <laughs> And, you know, but because I am a conscientious person, <laughs> you know, going back mm-hmm. to my very original yeah. word, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not comfortable with that. I, yeah. I carry the burden uh, of other people when I can because it's unnerving to me to think that they have to do it all alone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then on top of that, um, there, it's a del- very delicate situation. I mean, we're talking about... Um, you know, not just being anti-racist, but there's a, there's of course intersectionality, right. That we're supposed to consider now too. And right. I'm concerned about people with disabilities and I'm concerned about, um, you know, transgendered folks and, mm-hmm. um, poor people and, um, an, an increasingly, uh, a, a population I'm increasingly aware of, um, for their sort of like mistreatment and even just oversight or elders, um, yeah. you know, our older population are just, um, you know, they get forgotten at some point. So when you combine all those things together, um, the person that experiences all of those things 
has it pretty bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I can walk, I, I'm able-bodied, I can go into a store and not seem threatening to other white people. I mean, yeah. some people would probably disagree because I think from taking public transportation so long, I have now what I call trolley face. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm not like a, a super, dis, you know, unimposing person, but um, but I'm not going to be, um, probably not going to be subjected to any kind of trauma because yeah. of being a white lady, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and I didn't necessarily grow up like wealthy either. So I, I know a lot of people who were, um, and I wouldn't call myself poor, but having grown up in a rural area around, around people who would consider themselves poor, um, I think they are especially, you know, bothered by the word privilege because poverty is a, a real serious thing mm-hmm. and they experience their own oppression, you know, because of that too. Of course. However, you know, if you're driving around and run a red light or have a tail light out, you might still not be, um, you know, trailed by a cop or pulled over by a cop for that just because of those, you know, you might not feel like it's just because you're, you're black, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really delicate thing. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by not admitting that it's very delicate and, Mm -hmm. um, actually listening to people that do get their feathers ruffled by the word privilege and don't feel like it, it counts to them. I mean, to some point, at some point we have to do some, uh, attempt to, uh, to educate, you know, at least. Yeah. There's so many layers to it. Mm-hmm. I heard a good explanation for it, that privilege in this context means not that your life is easy, but that the color of your skin is not something that makes your life more difficult. Right. And again, if you look at, if you look at all these different intersections, like I, like I mentioned before, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the, one of the ways that I try to convey anti-racism and allyship to other white people who maybe don't get it or don't think that it applies to them or, you know, whatever is, is almost always through disability. You know, my, my best friend has a daughter who has Down syndrome and, I don't think it's very difficult to get anybody to understand that her life is just challenging for who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that she's worth less love, <laughs> you know, and yeah. um, attention and education and compassion. Um, and if she were um, disabled and also, you know, a black or brown person, she might experience even more, um, you know, prejudice and, and, um, oppression than just somebody else who's, you know, who, who might be just white and disabled in some way. Um, Mm. so that, that does sometimes work, you know, like she is, uh, she is non non nonverbal, you know, she speaks mostly through sign Mm. language, whereas, you know, another kid maybe that grew up in a more affluent community with Down syndrome might be completely verbal and totally, you know, full capacity, you know, vocabulary. Um, so I think like kind of helping and encouraging people to think outside of just race, race is not Mm -hmm. the only issue, but that is certainly an issue. Um, sometimes it helps, you know, sometimes it, it, it gets through to people a little bit. They still don't, I think ultimately people hear race and racism and racist and they think like, that's a bad word. I'm not a bad person. You can't call me that. Yes. But yes. 
as a as an ally, you know, somebody at least who works towards allyship, um, which is an ongoing process. Um, right. It's important for me to tell people like, no, I I I am racist because I grew up in a racist country <laughs> with yes. racist textbooks that taught me things that were racist. They whitewashed mm-hmm. history. Um, you know, they left a lot of stuff out or completely overrode it in a much more pleasant tone, not to upset people. And mm-hmm. that's racist. And that's how I learned. <laughs> so I have to dismantle that in myself, you know. Yeah, exactly. I have the same thought about and it's such a struggle to admit that you're racist because, like you said, it's a bad word and no one wants to be bad and we don't want to be racist. But then we all have, so I have a story to tell and I think we all have a similar story. But So one time I was driving my car and I remember locking my doors as my car door, as a black man was walking by with his yo-yo mm-hmm. and he heard the doors lock. And I didn't do it because of him. It was just the habit that I drive to this stoplight and I lock my doors. Mm-hmm. But he heard it and I know it broke his heart and I saw that and there was nothing I could do. Like I I guess I could have like hung out the window and said, no, 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 it's not because of you. I just do it right here. <laughs> but like I didn't and I never did that again. I, you know, I saw the hurt that that caused and it doesn't matter that I did it because it was a habit or that I, if I did it because he was walking by, he felt that and I did that to him. And those are just little examples of racism. Like I certainly don't try, but it's just part of the culture. I mean, there is a reason that I locked my doors before I drove through the neighborhood that I was driving (laughs) through. Like it's just the way it is. And I don't know. I think we all have experiences like that where we do something a little bit mindlessly like Mm -hmm. like the ladies who grab their purse when you know a black person walks in the store and I don't know if just realizing that you do that and stop grabbing your purse or whatever it is like I don't know what can we do better how do we do better we can't go around apologizing to everybody well I mean some of that goes back to the conscientiousness right yeah. I mean, we, we consider little things like that microaggressions. Yes. It's little mindless things that we have been sort of predisposed to do because of the culture that we live in. And, you know, I, I and I've had to remind family, you know, when they come and visit me, um, that, that, you know, the, the family that comes from the suburbs that's like scared of the city, you know, like um, <laughs> yeah. I have to remind them how to act sometimes, you know, because they're removed <laughs> from it. Um, you know, and thankfully, you know, for the most part, they're receptive to that and they get that. We don't get into a deep conversation about microaggressions, but, um, you know, my little sisters came and visited me once. They're considerably younger than me because they're half sisters and uh, almost the same exact thing happened. And I don't know that they, if they were conscious of it or not, I like to think that they weren't like (laughs) worried, you know, that one of my neighbors was walking down the street and we got in the car and they locked the door you know, as we got in and that might just be their habit. But I said, you know, they did it when he was within earshot and I, I waved to him, (laughs) you know, and just said like, Hey, what's up, you know, and called his name. I don't know if he heard it happen or not, but we, I use that as an opportunity to have a conversation with my sisters about that and just say like, um, I want you to know what that looks like to somebody, even to me, not just to him, but what that looks like to somebody in a different environment than where you're used to being, you know? 
Um, and, and they, they got it, you know, I think, um, and that's a great thing too. I think teenagers nowadays, um, and this will happen in every generation. They have as much to teach us as we have to teach them. And they are now, I, I like to pat myself on the back at least a little bit, but I know they have learned from my family just as much as from me. Um, they're very, they went to their first Black Lives Matter, you know, march in their little tiny white Republican town a couple months ago. And um, yeah, I was, Good. I was proud that they were, in, you know, getting involved and that they know that that's something that is important. So I don't, I'm not saying it was out of that conversation, but when you have an opportunity to have those kinds of conversations, I think, you know, by all means you have to have them. Yeah. Well, and something that struck me about my little experience or encounter with that guy is the Mm yo-yo that he was playing with a yo-yo. And I wonder if he does that while he walks around just to seem less threatening. Mm -hmm. And it, you know what I'm talking about? Like they have to, um, black people have to do something to seem less threatening and that's awful. So I don't have to do anything, yeah. you know, they have to change their behavior. Yeah. There's a book called, I haven't read it, but I heard the author speak, um, whistling Vivaldi mm-hmm. and he walks around whistling this concert piece or opera. I don't know the, <laughs> which one it is just to seem educated and not threatening mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't know the weight of that. It's, it's exhausting. Yes, it's just a, such an exhausting way for for people who are already so exhausted by society to live. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like they have to think: How can I not scare people when I walk out the door mm-hmm. just because of who I am? Oh, exhausting is a good word mm-hmm. for it. I couldn't imagine having to live that way. Yeah, it's a huge burden. I can't. You know, I mm-hmm. mean. I say this as, you know, somebody who only hears it from other people, like I don't live that. And I mean, actually, that's not true because I I do think sometimes comparing, finding some relatability helps. Um, You know, one thing that I always sort of keep in mind is I, because I work in technology, um, I've been the only female for in my department or in my office for, I mean, probably 20 years. I think there was one job I had where I worked with all women. Um, which is a totally different ball of wax, you know, but um, yeah, I've been the only female for 20 years and I certainly have my own share of microaggressions in that yeah. respect to deal with, you know, <laughs> getting interrupted all the time and getting passed over for promotions and like all of the kind of typical things that, that, that we hear all the time. And I think, and I know that that's exhausting for me. So I can only imagine how just existing in your skin and having people, treat you differently must feel. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I know comparison is probably not like the best measure for a lot of people, but um, I think relatability, if there's some relatability to come from it, then use that if that helps you become a better <laughs> ally. Yeah, exactly. Well, just having some empathy and putting yourself in someone else's shoes and going, oh, that... <laughs> That seems like a lot of extra work that they have to do mm-hmm. to make me feel comfortable. Maybe I should just feel comfortable. Right. <laughs> or be okay with being uncomfortable. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. It took a long time for me here in Portugal to feel safe. You know, there's all those things that we teach women to do to be safe, like carry your keys in your hand mm-hmm. and check your backseat of your car. 
And I don't have to do that here in Portugal. It's it's pretty safe. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to kind of unclench mm-hmm. <laughs> and be able to walk around freely. Yeah. I don't know. Fascinating. So tell me about your work in the community, because I know you do a lot of things. You mentioned a lot of them already, like contacting your elected officials. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of your favorite things to do or that you feel are most impactful? So one of the things I spend the majority of my time doing, and I think this does inform the rest of my activism, is um, I live in uh, West Philadelphia, you know, which most people will recognize because of Will Smith. But um, okay. I live in West Philadelphia, and I've been here almost 15 years, and I moved to a part of West Philadelphia that when I got here, there really weren't a lot of white people. Um, mm-hmm. It was a, a place I could afford to live, basically, and that's how I decided to buy a house here. Yeah. And in living here over the last, like, 15 years, it's been I've, – I've used it as an opportunity, really, to learn more about my own community. I mean, it's the first time I owned a home, so I really wanted to be involved anyway. Um, I mean, I'm just sort of a lifelong volunteer. I was in AmeriCorps. I've done, you know, all kinds of different service, um, you know, throughout, just throughout the course of my life. And that, that is true, you know, whether it's through an organization or just, you know, independently. And um, I got involved with, we have, in Philadelphia, we have what are called block captains. And so that's like the, the boots on the ground, like, you know, part of the the machine of politics in Philadelphia. Those are just the people that keep maintain the blocks, you know, maintain community yeah. on the blocks and sweep them up and whatever. So it's it's kind of a legacy issue and it's it's sort of fallen by the wayside a little bit because the older generations are now um, you know, kind of dying off, unfortunately, and like younger people don't want to do it. But we do it our own way. You know, we still are involved. We just don't do it that like formal way. Yeah. But so I met the block captain um of my block when I first moved here, she invited me to start coming to some meetings. And I was um, definitely the only white person there. And I was probably younger than people by about 40 years. And I just thought like, I mean, I also moved back to Philadelphia to be closer to my grandparents. I, as I said, you know, before they kind of raised me, um, that's where my brother and I went after school. We spent a lot of time with them. So I've always had um, just good relationships with older people. I just, I love them. I think they have great stories. Um, I think that they, they kind of get like, um, kind of get the shaft, you know, in society, they do get kind of forgotten. They, um, and then they get lonely. Uh, you know, it's sad. I don't, I don't like to think of that. So my block was also very old when I first moved here. A lot of people were older than 75. Um, you know, with a couple of young families. And so I got involved because I wanted them to know that I cared about them, you know, and wanted them mm-hmm. to be safe and wasn't just here to like fix up a house and then turn it over and, you know, sell it and, and be gone and kind of, you know, change their life. Um, and in doing that, I learned a lot about the history of the neighborhood. Um, I learned about redlining, which, you know, if you're not familiar with that, that's probably a topic for a whole other podcast. But, you know, it was a legal practice of of racially discriminating against um, potential homeowners, basically. Um, yeah. It's the real short version of that. And I live eight houses on the wrong side of the red line, um, mm-hmm. the wrong side, especially if you were black in the 50s. Um, and so learning about that and just learning about how they had to you know, live in their own community, um, made me 
feel like, and this was before we had all this terminology. I didn't know what account or um, microaggressions were or uh, anti-racism was, or, you know, like we weren't talking about this stuff in those terms 15 years ago. At least I wasn't. Yeah. So yeah. it made me more aware of the fact that those are things that I never had to experience in my life. That's privilege. Um, right. And what do I do as somebody that has this, this privilege when I'm surrounded by a community that has had it worse than me, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I started a community organization because there really wasn't one. There was the block captains organization that I mentioned, but they they were getting older. They weren't um, tech savvy. So they didn't know how to like get more people, you know, like get the word out to more people. Um, you know, they, they were not going to be using social media, you know, whatever. Um, so I started by getting involved in my local library and in doing that, I met a woman who, um, or got acquainted with a woman that I knew through like other channels, who was a longtime resident of the neighborhood, an older, older black woman. And together we started a community organization. And I bring that part up specifically because it was not my place to come to a black community and start a community organization. <laughs> That's not the right. way to do it. <laughs> Um, when, when, a when it it took me a long time to really understand when, when a white person says like, I'm here to help, (laughs) that's not always well received. (laughs) And, you know, you think like, no, I'm here to help, but they want to know what you mean by that. You know, people want to know, what do you think you're going to do to help us? Um, Mm -hmm. and it's funny because now I do it to other people. I mean, I have, because we have a mailing list and a Facebook page, it's, you know, and all this stuff, we do have younger people, younger white people like moving into the community and they reach out and they want to help. And I kind of interrogate them, you know, the same way that (laughs) my neighbors interrogated me. I mean, they taught me, (laughs) they taught me to do that. So, um, so I didn't start this organization. Uh, it's called Cobbs Creek Neighbors. Until I met this woman, Monica, like I said, who was a longtime resident. She went to the two, three of the local schools in the community, you know, throughout her um, like adolescence and teenage years. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's great. She's a she's, you know, half mentor, half friend. um, And we run this organization together. And really, it's just bringing resources to an under resourced community. Um, but there are times where she needs to handle things as like the face of the organization and it's not appropriate for me to do it. Um, right. And so I, I, I think the dynamic that we have is, is really great and I really appreciate it. I learn a lot. Um, you know, I hope that I'm not giving her more work to do around race, <laughs> you know, at all times. <laughs> I'm always trying, trying really hard to be, you know, cognizant of that and, uh, and she'll tell me. <laughs> so, um, That's good. you know, it helps to have somebody honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is a tricky thing though, isn't it? Because we want to help in quotes, whatever, mm-hmm. but we don't realize like people are probably already doing good work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't know. It, it's a, it's a tricky thing to balance. It is. Um, and I, it's funny because learning about it now that I'm older and we have the language for it, it's easier to decipher. But when I was, when I was in AmeriCorps, I did, I was a literacy tutor in Oakland, California. Um, mm-hmm. And I was in like deep East Oakland, which, uh, you know, for anybody that's familiar with it, it's very far removed from the rest of the city. It's like way out by the Coliseum, you know, where the football team plays and uh, by the, air, by the airport. Um, so it's, I mean, it's in the outskirts, you know, they are, they are all but forgotten out there. And, um, the school that I worked at was right around the corner from one of the founding 
locations of the Black Panthers, um, you know, like free breakfast program. And it was still an active location when we were there. And I remember early in my uh, sort of, um, you know, year of service there, taking the bus and getting off the bus. And uh, if you can see me right now, I'm just pretend I'm holding my backpack up with my thumbs in the straps, you know, and I'm smiling and I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to help people, you know, like I'm going to teach kids. And somebody came (laughs) out of the, um, out of one of the like local, you know, bodegas or something. Um, and, and, you know, yelled something at me, um, that I I don't even remember exactly what they said, but basically like, you know, I'm, they didn't want white people there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I shouldn't have been there doing that, and it was like, you know, it was a it was a blow. At I think I was 21 years old at the time when bef- before I knew any of this stuff, you know, 25 years ago. Um, yeah. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, I get it. No, I totally get it. Like, yeah. I had every right to do that. Um, <laughs> you know, and it didn't take long. It didn't take you know, but a whole school year to realize that the things that they were dealing with there were things I never had to deal with before. I mean, there were kids mm-hmm. that knew they did duck and cover, um, drills there. And this was in the late nineties, mm-hmm. you know, this is not a very long time ago. Um, they did duck and cover drills there, but it wasn't because of like atomic, um, mm. fallout. It was because they would have drive-by shootings, um, yeah. at their schools. Uh, and I worked in first grade and I mean, there would be a loud noise and a kid would get under a desk and I, I would go home and cry because I was just like, right. I never had to experience that kind of trauma in first grade yeah. in Catholic school in South Jersey, you know, like this is just outside of my scope, you know, like, what am I doing? This is wrong. What am I doing here? You know, um, yeah. you know, but all that to say, like, I, I'm glad that I made it through the year and I'm glad that people educated me and I'm glad that, um, I did it without could, you know, hopefully causing more harm in a community than, than, you know, than good. Hmm. I mean, I guess in the long run it caused more good because you're more active and more educated. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's tricky. Yeah. I grew up in Utah where everybody was white. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) Right. But I wasn't Mormon and everyone else was Mormon. Mm -hmm. So I learned firsthand to put myself in other people's shoes. But even that isn't the same because you can't look at someone and see what religion they are. Mm -hmm. So I could still safely walk around. Yeah. It was only in conversation that people would discover that I was different, which was tricky. I mean, it taught me a lot of things, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And similarly to your neighborhood in Philly, where I lived in Akron, um, I worked for a title company when when we bought our house. Mm-hmm. And so I got to see the original title and like the land map. I don't know what they're called anymore, mm-hmm. but it specifically said no black people. Mm-hmm. Like my neighborhood, my whole area was built for, I think, veterans and people who worked for the tire company. Mm-hmm. And it was written in the deed that black people had to be out of the neighborhood by like 6 p.m. or wow. something. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And then there must have been white flight because when I moved into that neighborhood, there were maybe six white families and the rest were minorities. So there was a huge white flight in that neighborhood. And it was it was interesting. Right. Yeah. And these are the kind of things that I think a lot of people really don't, they just don't know, you know, it's not, it's not mm-hmm. so much that they don't understand it, but they haven't been 
exposed to it. Now, I mean, I will say in in my instance and probably even in your own, I'm I'm just a curious person. So I've done a lot of my own research, you know, um, I have been, you know, lucky to sort of be exposed to ideas that are outside of my scope, you know, in some way or another, just by getting involved or, or however I came across it. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't just stop there. You know, I, I do try to read um, and and keep my, you know, now at least in the context of, of like social media, um, my yeah. timeline is full of um, black voices, you know, black, brown, indigenous voices um, that expose me to things that I, I just wouldn't otherwise be exposed to unless I sought it out. And you you can't know what you don't know. So like, how do you just Google? Yeah. Um, you can't Google like, tell me things I don't know about, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so yes. I think like the one of the easiest things that anybody can do who wants to just have that exposure to things outside of their own realm is find, find voices that are counter to yours. And, you know, I don't mean like insurrectionists. I mean, like, sure. Find native, um, activists and writers and comedians and, you know, like it can be lighthearted. I, I just started recently following Amber Ruffin, who's a comedian. Um, she's been on a, a couple of different shows and I've liked her, but you know, I follow her on Instagram now. Um, some some content is darker than others, and some people have a hard time, you know, digesting that. I'm not really afraid of dark content because it still informs me. Um, yeah. Sonia Renee Taylor is another um, black woman that I follow who – she has a book called The Body is Not an Apology. Um, and as much as she is a, a black female voice, she is also somebody who focuses a lot on, um, like, body image um, you know, issues, you know, like fat shaming and, and things like that. And, you know, that's, that's out, kind of outside of, of my scope too. Like I just, it's just not necessarily a thing that I um, live with or, or think about in the way that people who, um, you know, experience that may, maybe personally do. Mm-hmm. Um, same with, you know, disability, um, you know, pick, pick an, pick an issue, <laughs> pick a topic yeah. that you could get involved in. Um, Exactly. Just finding uh, finding those people that can educate you from a place of, of personal experience is incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. And it starts with curiosity, mm-hmm. like you were saying, like you just kind of get curious about different cultures or different people. Mm-hmm. And there's so much wisdom, like we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. So why not learn from other people? Exactly. And you know, like I said, if it's their personal experience, you know, it's obviously super, super helpful um, to just kind of hear, yeah. like, especially somebody who is willing to sh- to share that. You know, some people are less so; they don't necessarily want to put their lives on the line that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if if you're, I don't think there's nobody should feel shame in not being exposed to anything. Um, yes. But I think also having that curiosity and exploring it. Uh, can only stand to make us all better and more informed, you know, about one another. Um, and I think also having curiosity without judgment and it, and recognizing that before you learn more about a topic, you probably do have some, some judgments, you know, th- those are the biases um, that we're working mm-hmm. to dismantle. Um, just not being hard on yourself about feeling that way when you get started, I think is um, incredibly beneficial um, just, you, you know, recognize that the more that you learn, hopefully the more those, those biases and those judgments will sort of 
hopefully just melt away. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good point about getting curious and looking up things. So what I'm getting to is the the idea of defund the police Mm -hmm. when when all of that conversation started. Mm -hmm. And even I initially was like, oh, we're going to defund them. (laughs) How do you do what? (laughs) But instead of saying that's a terrible idea, I have decided that's a bad idea. Like I Googled Mm -hmm. it. And then I, as I read about it, I was like, this is reasonable. It's very smart. Mm -hmm. People have thought about this for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And now they're bringing it up because now is the time. Mm -hmm. I actually like to say, make police obsolete. Um, because, (laughs) you know, quite frankly, I mean, there's a lot of jobs in the world where your ultimate goal should be making yourself unemployed, (laughs) you know, like there are a lot of problems in the world and solving those problems would render you obsolete in that, in that career, whatever it is. Um, and I don't see why that can't be one of them. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that in my lifetime I haven't called the cops for something or, uh, you know felt like I needed to at least. Um, but I'm definitely more hesitant to do that without really pausing to think about all of the implications of a situation and what, what that may entail, you know, entail and how that might, um, do more harm than good. Uh, I think, I think the harm reduction method is really invaluable for a lot of different topics, like across the, you know, the, the board. Um, and in a lot of instances, unfortunately, uh, cops do more harm than good. Um, I think that we've yeah. seen that. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be cautious here, you know, not to, not to give too, too much away. Cause I don't know what kind of <laughs> podcast you want this to be. Um, but you know, back to my original point, if you're trying to make them obsolete, I mean, what we should be doing is preventing crime. What we should be doing exactly. is preventing death and robbery and pre- prevention, prevention, prevention. And the cops operate um, kind of fundamentally on a punitive <laughs> scale. Yeah. Um, that's how yeah. they were designed. I, yeah, you know, you almost can't blame them. I mean, that's what they signed up for. That's, that's how they learned. Yep. That's what they were taught. That's how our culture, um, especially American culture, I'm sure in other places, you know, plenty too, but in American culture, um, we like to punish people for things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I remember I went to Catholic school, so I have a really bad taste in my mouth for punishment. You know, it was often abusive, um, you know, and, and yeah. that might be, it might sound like a weird parallel, but it, it comes up a lot. Um, especially, uh, I just recently rewatched the movie Spotlight. I don't remember, if, I don't know if you saw that or not, but, you know, it's the, it's a movie about this uh, investigative journalism team from the Boston Globe that wrote about the, uh, like, church um, sexual yeah. abuse uh, that was happening. And I mean, like all the way up to the Vatican, you know? Um, and they, you know, there's a moment where they're, they can pu- start publishing these stories, but they don't want to, because if they push a little bit further, they can actually reveal that this issue does go all the way up to the Vatican. And that's what they're trying to do. Um, that's mm-hmm. what we mean by systemic issues. The system of, uh, you know, the system that is in place from the Vatican down has, enabled and um, uh, just allowed this uh, environment of abuse to happen for generations. And they've hidden it and they've covered it up or they've taken priests out and they've moved them to Mm -hmm. communities and neighborhoods like near near churches and schools and near little kids. And, you know, um, 
they're not so punitive about that for some reason. Um, but you can see parallels <laughs> to how how you know bad or abusive cops are are treated. Um, and I, I I'm very intentionally saying bad and abusive cops because there may be good cops. I I do think that there are people who get involved because they want to be helpful, etc. But they have yeah. they are getting involved in a system that is designed to punish and hurt and harm other people. And until those systemic things are dealt with, that's just how they're going to operate. I mean, that's kind of their whole point. They're doing exactly what they were designed to do. Um, And so like to fund the police might scare people, but I think, you know, honestly, like you said, you heard it, it ruffled your feathers. You did some investigating and you were like, Oh no, that actually kind of makes sense. If anybody has ever seen a police budget, especially if you are a visual learner, like I am, and you see, um, you know, a bar graph, basically, of what your mm-hmm. schools get versus what your police gets in your city. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only imagine and hope that more people are appalled by that uh, as much as I am. I mean, right. you know, our schools are struggling and kids are graduating that can't read and then they're going out and getting jobs and then they get fired because they didn't learn the right skills, you know, et cetera, whatever. And then they get in trouble yeah. with the law. And the the law's response to everything is there's more crime. We need more stuff. You know, we need, we need tear gas. We need, we need more guns. We need, now we need pickup trucks. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, as somebody who is conscientious about waste (laughs) from an environmental standpoint, (laughs) I mean, I look at all things like that. I mean, that is just, that is just wasteful. You're not, uh, you're not solving the problems. You're actually creating more. Uh, you're creating yeah. more, you know, disjointed um, uh, relationships and devolving trust by taking from resources that the rest of us all really need. Um, yes, and not and you know and abusing your your authority with your own funds. So exactly. Oh my gosh, there's so much good stuff you said there, but the thing that stands out to me that I really want to talk about that you said was to make them obsolete. Obsolete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this idea of solving the upstream problem. Mm-hmm. There's a story of like these two guys were standing by a river and they kept seeing these kids screaming and the kids are stuck in the river. And so the guy, the one guy goes into the river and pulls the kid out. And a couple minutes later, there's another kid crying in the river. He's stuck in the middle of the river and the guy goes and pulls the kid out of the river. And his friend leaves and he's like, what is this guy doing? His friend went up the river (laughs) to stop whoever was throwing kids into the river. (laughs) That's what we need to do is go up Mm -hmm. the river and stop people from throwing kids in the river. We need to go to the source of poverty, of of, you know, education problems, of all of that stuff. And that's what defund the police is about, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it, um, you know, you can ask a bunch of different activists and you'll probably get a bunch of different answers, you know, and I'm sure, sure. I'm learning um, because I have exposed myself to people who have been studying this for a lot longer than I have. You know, there are full on abolitionists. I mean, no prisons, no police, no nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a hard one for a lot of people too, because, you know, there are people who legitimately have, and, you know, I think with good reason, questions about, you know, like women who have um, been um, assaulted, sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they want their assaulters in jail. 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I kind of, yeah, I get it. You know, or right mm-hmm. now we're looking at all of these people who stormed the Capitol the other day who are going to, mm-hmm. um, what, go to jail with potentially more white supremacists, <laughs> you know, and be building <laughs> right. like a cell of white supremacists in jail with uh, corrections officers who may also be white supremacists and, you know, it's yeah. a whole system. Um, I, I don't really have like solutions or answers to any of that stuff right now, but <laughs> but I say that only to say, like I said, there are full abolitionists. There are people who literally just want us to stop giving so much money to police departments when so many other resources are underfunded or, you know, so, so many other services and programs and things are underfunded. Um, or at least until they get their heads on straight, if that's a thing that can be done. Um, yeah. I mean, I often also like to say, you know, if there are good cops, then why aren't they calling out the bad cops? Um, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately they also can be punished for that too. Um, you know, they're in an environment where if they do speak up, they could be harassed at work. They could be assaulted at work. They could be fired, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I don't, I don't bring any of this stuff up to suggest that I have actual answers, (laughs) um, or solutions, you know, like all out solutions. But I do think at the bare minimum, um, you know, one of the things that bothers me the most is that when there are, uh, I think, unquestionably bad cops, like those who have been, um, you know, implicated in, uh, you know, there are cops who have been, like, implicated in, in say, like, drug busts, and they've, like, kept the drugs mm-hmm. and then sold them, or, you know, they they um, assaulted women or sexually harassed their coworkers, even, you know, fellow cops, um, yeah. we've had a couple here in Philadelphia, one in particular stands out who was already fined, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for something that he did. I don't even remember what it was. And then he was back on the force mm-hmm. and he did it again. And who do you think pays those fines? <laughs> um, right. you know, that the taxpayers are paying for bad cops. And I think at the very exactly. least you sh- we should be able to, get people to, to fellow taxpayers to recognize that when a cop is assaulting his coworkers, sexually harassing and sexually assaulting his own female coworkers, and then gets sued, the city gets sued, mm-hmm. somebody has to pay that, and that's us. Yep. And yep. if you start with these very obvious instances where you think you can get everybody on board, I mean, you know, I'll pause to say that if if we really have to make it about money, that's actually very sad. You know, that you're not uh, right. concerned about sure. people's well-being enough to get involved. Um, yeah. But money is what people latch on to. Um, and if that can <laughs> yes. be the thing that you can at least use as an explainer um, in, in why people like me are, you know, attempting to take funds away from the police, I'll say, or make them obsolete, uh, then, you yeah. know, use that as an example for sure. I mean, I think defund the police, when I really researched and read about it, it it actually is compassionate to the police because they're doing stuff that they're not trained for and they're not, we shouldn't expect them to do that. There are people who study and who have the training to do those mm-hmm. things and we just throw police into situations that they're ill-prepared for. It's true, so, yeah. Yeah. And some of this is um, some, there are some like intergenerational um aspects Mm -hmm. of this that I think we really need to kind of like 
shake out some of the old cobwebs, um, you know, because I mentioned earlier in this conversation about going to the block captains meetings and how everybody there was much older than me. And there are two things that I started hearing at these meetings, like ad nauseum, um, even, even back then, like 10 or 10 or 12 years ago, when I started going that weren't sitting right with me. One of them was, um, older generations were taught in Philadelphia and probably in other places to sweep their trash into storm drains. Yeah. So when the block captains would go out and they would do a, a, a street sweep, um, and they were much less dirty than they are now. That's just how industrialization has like impacted cities, but they would sweep, um, you know, all of their trash into the storm drains. Well, now we know that that's mm-hmm. wrong and we shouldn't do that because that's where our drinking water <laughs> yeah. goes. It has to be treated. More people have to do more work. This is going upstream, right? To like remove yes. the kids going <laughs> into the storm drain. Um, yes. The other thing that the older folks would tell you for literally every issue that would come up at these meetings is call 911. They would tell you to call 911 if there was a, a car left on your block that wasn't supposed to be there, like it was abandoned. Oh, they yeah. would tell you to call 911 if you're, I can't even think of, you know, some other things, like if the lines weren't painted on the road properly for like a crosswalk or something like that. And it became oh, almost, gosh. it started feeling like they treated it like their concierge service. You know, um, yes. you know, and then there's extensions of that, too. There are town watches. I think we probably um, by now should all know that like some town watches exist, especially in suburban um, communities, I think, exist uh, sort of to be like these, you know, uh, independent like vigilantes. Um, and those can yeah. often obviously be very racist. I think, you know, for anybody that is listening, George Zimmerman is, is who comes to mind when I think of town watch. Um, and we did have those in, in Philadelphia too. I think there's a couple that still exist, but they work in tandem with the police. Um, so mm-hmm. things that sound good on the surface, like a white lady going into Oakland to teach reading to first graders, <laughs> there's often a lot more behind it that you really need to investigate and make sure that, you know, foundationally it's as wholesome as you really think that it is. Um, and be prepared if it's not, because you you have to rectify with that per, with yourself personally. Um, but so those are the things that I was hearing from older people, where I was just like, okay, you know what? I think we have to start doing some unlearning and relearning because both of those things aren't correct anymore. And it's it's hard. It's going to be harder to teach the older folks that have these habits have had these habits longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, thankfully there are also younger people teaching me, you know, so yeah. I think like having that kind of stewardship generationally is really important because we have to, we have to work towards prevention at this point and teaching younger generations about that, I would hope can only be helpful. That seems like a big theme in all of this activism and, and all of that unlearning and relearning mm-hmm. because, because it's a system we learned the wrong things, mm-hmm. right? So we have to unlearn and relearn. Mm-hmm. I think that I read one of the books that we were all recommended to read over the summer. What was it? How to Be an Anti-Racist, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was part of one of the action steps. I always want action steps. What can mm-hmm. I do? Can I go march? Can I, what can I, can I write something down? Um, and that was a big part of it, right? To unlearn and relearn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you for all of this. Now I have three questions that I'm going to ask you that I ask everybody on the podcast, but I'm doing a little twist on these. So what's something that frustrates you about this whole conversation about privilege or Black Lives Matter movement or anti-racist work about this stuff that we've been talking about? What frustrates you about that 
internally within the movement? Um, hmm. That's a good question. Like I mentioned, I'm I'm frustrated by our, our bad marketing, like words mm-hmm. like defund the police scare people. Mm-hmm. So something like that, you know? I mean, you know, obviously I think with any of these, the, the biggest frustration is people that, people that aren't curious enough to do some research on their own. Yeah, and that's just a that's too too big of a of an obstacle I think to to delve into here. But you know, even for the people like me who think that they're doing the work, mm-hmm. there's just always more to do. I think you know, and in any movement anywhere, more people can be doing more. You know, you're either already doing a lot, but you need to focus somewhere else, or you're not doing anything and you need to learn some things. Mm-hmm. I think that you know. I know you probably might be looking for something a little smaller than that. The other, the other thing I, I will say is nowadays when I am involved, I do it less with an organization and I do it more independently. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just my personal preference. I don't know if I'm just turning into like a nihilist in my <laughs> old age, <laughs> but because, you know, I've been with a lot of organizations that at some point, like they all let you down, you know, yeah. uh, the women's March was, well-intentioned. Our local women's march was was pretty great, but there were some dark things happening in the background that I was unaware of um, that really tainted the the fundamental like principle of it all. You know, even the the overarching um, women's march. You know, mm-hmm. there were some people that were concerned that there were people involved at like the upper levels that were anti-Semitic, oh, and yeah. you know that goes back to like the old issues of feminism where it was white feminism, you know, that really yeah. left out black women uh, and or co-opted the work of other people and mm-hmm. claimed it as their own. I mean, we have to stop appropriating other people's work. So, you know, I think of just about everything in the world as a spectrum. So I think those are both ends of my spectrum is people in movements who are doing t- harm to it. And then people who are so far removed from them that you just don't even know if you're going to get through. Yeah. <laughs> Just some small issues to think about. Sure, some small things. <laughs> Are you optimistic about the future of all this free speech and racial equality and that kind of stuff? <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I think even the, the grumpiest of us are have to be some optimistic mm-hmm. or we wouldn't do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I maybe don't like externalize it as much as I should. I'm I'm optimistic when I know that I'm surrounded by other people that are, you know, like fighting the good fight. You know, I, I am optimistic. Um, and I'm optimistic when I hear about people that just do things completely on their own. I shared some story yesterday about a guy in South Jersey who turned his garage into a food pantry. Mm. And I was just like, that's the coolest. Like, yeah, he wouldn't go into He wouldn't be on a podcast and say, like, I'm, I don't get involved with organizations because I'm a nihilist. <laughs> you know, like I <laughs> He was just like, and he's like this big jolly guy, you know? And I'm like, that's the best. I, I love when people just find a way to help and do it and they don't overthink it. You know, I didn't overthink it when I was in AmeriCorps and I was, I'm here to help, you know, walking down the street right. with a backpack on. I just did it. And I learned along the way and it was, it wound up being fine. Yeah. So yeah, I think that we're all, we're all optimistic or we wouldn't be doing this work. Okay. I like that answer. <laughs> Here's one where I might be a little more optimistic than you, mostly because of younger people. Mm-hmm. Normally, I am not optimistic. Hmm. I am the least optimistic about sustainability and stuff like that. So <laughs> that's why that's why I ask people because I want them to help mm-hmm. me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think things are changing in this area of culture. So mm-hmm. I, 
It makes me feel good. Um, but what's something you wish you were doing better? Because you're doing so much, but there's got to be something that you were like, mm, I could be better about this. Um, so I have come to realize, um, in my maturity and my advanced age, um, <laughs> that I definitely have, uh, some undiagnosed learning disabilities. I have ADHD. Um, and I've learned, I joke that I've learned, I've just learned how to harness my ADHD. That's why I am doing so much. Ah, um, yeah. but what I need to do better is I need to, I need to focus more. I, I can't just say yes to everything. You know, I want to be involved in all of the issues. But, um, you know, as I mentioned before, burnout is, yep. it's a real legitimate concern um, that a lot of us really kind of suffer with. And I think being okay with doing just the amount that I can do so I don't hit that part of like overwhelm. Because honestly, the the work suffers if you're not focused, you know? Yeah. Um, I saw a neighbor of mine a couple months ago. I was out walking my dog and I said something like, she's like, you're doing so much. I see you, you know, on the internet and you're at all these, in all these different Zoom calls and on all these different committees. And I was like, honestly, I feel like I'm, I'm doing so much that I'm like half-assing it. And she said, well, some people are no-assing it. So you're still doing better than them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I mean, that it's true. Again, like I think of things that, in a spectrum, you know, I could be just doing my community organization and that's it. And that would be good. That should be good enough for me. Um, for me, I, you know, I want to do, I want to do more than that, obviously. So I'm involved in, in micro and macro scales, but, but yeah, I would say, um, you know, winnowing some of that down and just kind of like focusing on an issue or being able to do, you know, this one thing a couple months out of the year and then put it aside and be able to focus on this other thing. Uh, cause like I said, the work kind of suffers when you can't like be fully into it sometimes, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay, good. I like that. Thanks. Admirable. <laughs> well, that is all I have for you. Thank you so much. Thank for this you. Discussion. I think this was great. Is there something you would recommend to people to do to get started if they want to address their privilege or if they want to get involved somewhere? Um, you know, the one thing I didn't really bring up is um, I have gotten involved with, um, I work for a university here in Philadelphia, and we have an anti-racist task force. Mm. And, you know, sometimes these things really are just kind of lip service, and that really sucks. Um, yeah. But I don't think that that should discourage people from trying to get involved, because you you will still learn something in the process. Oh, um yeah. So, you know, I would recommend to people if there are ways that you can get involved through your own organizations already, through your churches, I think, you know, there are some churches that are doing um, some anti-racist work. You don't have to go to protest all the time. You can certainly <laughs> read some books. There are some resources online, like um, Surge is one of them. They're not necessarily my favorite. It stands for, uh, actually, I forget what it stands for. It's S-U-R-J, something for racial justice. <laughs> um, I, yeah, we had a chapter of that in Akron, yeah. Yeah, they're all over the country. It's yeah. a white-led anti-racist organization, um, which I think poses its own its own you know, possible, you know, problematic stuff. Sure. Um, I think some anti-racist work should be done with um, p- black and brown people because <laughs> as much as we don't want them to, to constantly be educating us, white folks, um, we do sometimes need somebody there to be like, that's a terrible idea. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you're, if your church, if your 
your kids' schools, your own school, your universities, your job. You might even have to be the one to start it. Maybe you start like an anti-racist reading book club with some of your coworkers. Um, you know, there you can you can Google anti-racist books and probably get a decent list. However, I it's another thing I don't necessarily like is just telling people to just Google it because you know, like Alex Jones is also on Google too, and I don't <laughs> yes. you know I don't want to send you to Breitbart for anti-racist work. Exactly. Um, but find somebody like me, you know, in your <laughs> community or in your circle, in your family, whatever. And, you know, the other thing is just to be that way, you know, with your family. If you're just learning, tell them what you're just learning because maybe they're not learning at all. Um, mm. You know, if you're having a family Zoom or a family dinner or something like that, uh, you know, talk about Ibram X. Kendi or... Angela Davis, or oh, who's another one? I'm looking at my own books right now as I'm reading this this out loud. You know, these are just some things that you can do at a super micro scale, just with people that you talk to every day. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, good. Thank you. You're welcome. Do you have any questions for me? What kind of anti-racist work are you able to do from there? Um, unfortunately, I'm not doing anything here mm-hmm. um I did read a lot and I try to be more mindful and supportive there is some racial tension there's some some deep rooted racism here because this Portugal was a colonizer mm-hmm. there's some stuff going on there so I try to you know just listen and be supportive mm-hmm in the ways that I can, but I'm very solitary. So yeah, I understand. I don't really do anything. <laughs> I think as far as small scale stuff goes too, I'll just wrap it up with this. Um, I, again, going back to conscientiousness, mm-hmm. I try to be um, supportive of, you know, black and brown owned businesses too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kind of like, like I said before, putting your money where your mouth is, you can donate to, you know, causes and things like that. But um, at least here in the States, especially like the intergenerate intergenerational wealth is like non-existent for black and brown folks and indigenous folks. Um, and so if you are going to buy some anti-racist books, don't buy them from Amazon, buy them from a local black book shop, (laughs) um, and start with Ibram X. Kendi. He's, he's kind of the best, but he's also got a lot of videos on online too. He, he is, uh, kind of the man of the hour in the last like year or so. So He's um, so good. I follow him on Instagram and he brings up things that I would never even think of, which is mm-hmm. the point of all of this is to learn things you wouldn't think of yourself. Well, frankly, learning from a black man that also says, you know, I am unlearning, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I didn't realize that some of my own behavior was racist almost towards myself. You know, um, mm. I think that's disarming, especially for white folks who feel like that. It just means it's a bad word and, and they think it means you're a bad person. Um, you know, if, like I said, if we weren't optimistic, we wouldn't be doing this work. And part of our optimism is always thinking that people can be better than they are, even the good ones. Well, I hope that conversation was as fun and challenging and inspiring for you as it was for me. I think it's important to consider our identity when it comes to privilege and how to be an anti-racist, not just not be racist, but be actively anti-racist. Because that's what being a half hippie is all about, right? Being conscious of the world and other people and how we treat the planet and others. 
and just doing a little bit better, just half better. <laughs> it's gonna make a big difference for all of us. So if you want to take action on some of the stuff that you learned, like I do, getting involved locally, as she said, is a great idea. And also reading some books and just listening to new voices that have a new perspective that you may not have heard before. With that in mind, I'm going to post all week on the Half Hippie Podcast Instagram stories some different resources for you to check out. And if you're hearing this episode later, you can message me on Instagram. I'm happy to send any of these resources to you. Just hearing some new perspectives and some new ideas is going to help us understand more of the world. And it doesn't get better than that, right? We're always learning. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you to Larissa for having this conversation and I'll catch you soon.